Well, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to get those out. Just turn a few pages in uh, to the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll be in chapter 39. But, and, and while you're doing that, I had a, a public service announcement for everybody this morning. There are 148 days until Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Some of you are excited about that. Uh, others of you, a sheer look of panic went across your face. I only have 148 days until Christmas. It's out there a ways. Uh, so I was thinking about this week. Uh, I do advanced planning on um, sermon texts and, and outlines and things like that. And, and I've had an understanding about what Advent will look like this year, and so the Advent series that's coming up in less than 148 days uh, is called just simply Christmas. So I was looking through some of uh, what is planned for this coming December, and, the, and there were some chords that were similar in what that's going to look like in, in the passage that we have today. And so, if you look on your bulletin, the, the sermon title is Christmas in July. And I don't know about you, but I look outside, I don't think about Christmas at all. It doesn't, you I mean, the temperature is not ripe for a Christmas holiday. I remember we were, we were in Florida in the early part of December, and uh, my folks live in Tampa area, and we had driven over to Orlando. I think we went to Universal Studios or something like that. And so this is, you know, like the first, end of the first week of December, and, you know, it's not, it's not winter-like there. Of course, it's their winter, but it feels like western Washington spring, summer, and fall for the most part. And um, we're walking through Universal Studios, and we hear Christmas music. Uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. It's coming out of this little stone-looking speaker underneath a palm tree. And I'm like, you better keep dreaming, because it ain't going to be white Christmas. And uh, it just, it's, you know, you look outside, and you're like, I can't get my mind wrapped around Christmas already, so what are you doing with me? Well, I mean, it sounds like everybody likes Christmas, right? Everybody likes Christmas? Uh, so I want you to take like 10 or 15 seconds, turn to your neighbor, and tell your neighbor what is your favorite Christmas cookie. Go. Christmas cookie. Well, that's a challenge for some. <clears throat> well, my, somebody asked me what is mine. <laughs> Well, I like a good frosted, soft, chewy sugar cookie. But I also like, um, they're called Sally Ann's or the ginger cookies. That's, that's probably what I would put at the very top of my list. So, you know, there's always things that, that we like about the season. And, and I was going through this week and I was thinking about, I was thinking about some of my favorite Christmas carols. And the one that's going to come up that we sing each year, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, uh, Ransom Captive Israel, who mourns 
in lowly exile here. And if you think about the lyric to that, that's an Advent song. That is a song sung by people who are longing for the presence of Christ. They are longing for the Messiah who God had promised to come and make himself known. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that name means God with us. The people were longing for that presence of the Lord, and so they sing it out in song. It may be an ancient lyric, but I think it's one that hits every single one of us where we are. In some ways, we are all captive. In some ways, the parts of our lives that are, will always be in some sort of exile until the final presence of God is with us. And so, as we sing at Christmas time, that's really a song that we ought to be able to sing year round. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God, please come and be with us. We find ourselves as captives, as exile here, and, and we need you to come and release us and free us. That, that's a song that rings true to every single person. It's a song that really rings true to the person that we're studying this summer, the, the chapters that we're going through in the ending part of the book of Genesis Uh, they follow the story of a young man named Joseph. And Joseph finds himself uh, as a captive, as an exile, as a slave. And so uh, it rings true for him that he longed for the presence of the Lord to come and free him. So if you're in uh, Genesis uh, 39... It starts off, it starts off like this. And, and now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. There's a lot that we learn in, in one verse of this text. Last week, we were in Genesis uh, chapter 37, and we read the story of a family that was just riddled with sin and brokenness. At almost every place in their existence, there was some sort of uh, immorality, sin that had worked its way in that was uh, causing the family to, to be at odds with one another, to split at the seams, if you will. And uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, uh, favored Joseph. He, Joseph was, he enjoyed the place of favor in their household. Well, he had ten older brothers. He was the 11th boy in the family, and it's not normal that the 11th boy in an ancient household like that would be the one who received the blessing and, and the favor in the household. And so you can imagine that there were ten angry, jealous brothers who watched their father dote upon this young punk. And so uh, Joseph, um, Jacob comes to, to Joseph when the, the brothers are out uh, tending the sheep about 50 miles away. And he says, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers, and I want you to bring me back a report on everything that's going on. So Joseph, the 
little upstart manager, he goes out and he tries to find his brothers, and he finds them out there, and, and his dad had given him this, this coat. It's very, there's a lot of colors in this coat, so we hear it as, we, we hear it talked about as the coat of many colors, but it was kind of like a almost a royal robe, if you will. It was not a working man's coat. This was like management. This was uh, a coat of, of royalty. And, and so his brothers, they saw the coat coming. Hey, here comes the suit. And, and what are we going to do about it? Let's end this whole charade. Let's take him out. Let's just kill him now. He's 50 miles from home. He's away from the safety and protection of his dad. And so nobody will ever know. We can make it look like a wild animal got him, and hey, our lives will be a whole lot easier now. Well, one of them says, no, we don't want, we don't want his blood on our hands. So let's not, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit, this big cistern. So when he arrives there, they strip off his coat. You know, they don't like that symbol uh, of, this, of his favor, and so they throw him in the pit leave him to die, and then uh, they sat down for lunch, and a caravan came by. One of them had a brilliant idea. Well, let's, if we're not going to kill him, why don't we sell him as a slave and make some profit on him? So, Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites that we read just now in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 39. It reminds us of where we ended the story last week that this favored son, hated brother, uh, found himself being sold by his own family to a traveling caravan of people, and he was sold as a common slave, and they carted him off to Egypt. So we talked about brokenness and sin that just works its way and is ev evident in, in our own lives, and, and we talked about Jesus being the only one who can break the brokenness that we carry around. And, and that even in the midst of all of this bad stuff that is going on, the whole Joseph narrative at multiple points points us to the truth that God is the one who can take all of the broken pieces, he can take all of the bad situations of our lives, and he can take all of those and he can weave them together in, into a beautiful masterpiece. And so it doesn't matter where you've been, where you're going, whether, you're, whether you've messed up bad or just in a small way, whether that was 10 years ago or 40 years ago, all of the broken pieces God takes and he weaves them together when we give him all of the pieces and he can make something beautiful out of it. The doxology, the closing words of, of Joseph in this whole narrative, we'll get there in a, in a few weeks when we get to chapter 50, is what you intended for harm God used for good. That's where we started off last week, and we're reminded of all of that just in the words of uh, 39 verse 1. But, but it goes on, and we get, to, we get to, to verse 2, and it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Hmm. There's a lot... There's a lot right there in, in verse 2 as well. Let's, let's talk about this one for a second. There's a noticeable attitude change. There's a noticeable 
change in Joseph's demeanor between where we left off, the story that we read last week, and where we're entering in this week. Something happened on that caravan ride from uh, Canaan to Egypt. <clears throat> the, the brash, arrogant, prideful 17-year-old teenager uh, seems to have disappeared. The one who was kind of immature in the chapter we read last week, suddenly it seems like he has matured to some degree. And we wouldn't know how to account for that, except um, we'll get here in a second. Uh, might have something to do with the, the presence of God in his life. But, but this young lad was sold as a slave, and we learn that it's Potiphar who bought him when he got to Egypt. Now, Potiphar was a tough dude. This is not a guy that you would mess with. We learn that he is one of Pharaoh's officials. So Pharaoh has a cabinet of very close advisors. Potiphar's on that list of Pharaoh's cabinet. We're also told that his position in that cabinet is that he is the captain of the guard. So he's a military man. A more literal translation of captain of the guard would suggest that he was the chief executioner in all of Egypt. Uh, some scholars would say that that title probably meant that he was the top military person in all of Egypt. So he controlled Pharaoh's military. Somehow, Joseph caught the eye of Potiphar, and Potiphar bought him to be a slave in his household, which would have been fairly significant in size uh, when you figure in uh, his place in society there. So Joseph has had a little change of scenery. He's gone on this caravan ride. He's now a slave, and he's in Potiphar's house. I imagine... I imagine he's frightened a little bit. He's totally away from anything that he's ever known in his life. In fact, when his father sent him out to go check on his other brothers, that was the last time that Joseph was ever at home. Now he finds himself in a foreign land in the household of a pretty tough guy. You're not going to mess around there. Uh, he really doesn't have anybody to turn to. He doesn't have anybody to trust. I imagine that there's probably a language barrier as well. He's just all alone. And the only person that he can rely on is God. The only person that he can turn to is God. This guy, if you think about his story, he had every reason. Maybe some of the best reasons. He had every reason to be negative, to become bitter, to let hate take control of him, to just be an angry person. He had every reason. He had his life taken away from him, and he finds himself in this foreign land. He had every reason to let all of those circumstances change who he was. But we don't 
We don't read that about Joseph. I have a friend who, he was, uh, he was working at a church, and he was wrongly accused of some things, things that he had no part of, just things that he did not do, but uh, there were some false accusations, and it ended up costing him his ministry in that particular place. And for a while, he, he will report, I was teetering back and forth on that line of letting all of that negative stuff take me down, shake my faith, rock me to my core. I, I was on that, that edge there, and, and some days I could lean into the Lord, and, and other days I just was in a really dark place. The, the time that he was out of work, he, he wore through at least uh, one reading chair. He's like, I just sat in that chair hours and hours and hours. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any job prospects, and I, I wore out the chair, and I was partway through the second. It, Joseph was kind of in, in that position. He, was, he could have teetered back and forth between the darkness of despair or the, the, the joy and the vibrance that he could lean into in his relationship uh, with, with the Lord, which I think we have to ask the question, what what do we do? How do we respond when the circumstances of life put us in a place like Joseph is facing? It may not be that you are sold into slavery, but it, it may be that you got the pink slip on your desk or in the hospital room you got a visit from the doctor and, and they sit down and it's kind of silent for a minute and you kind of know it's just going to be bad news. What, what do you do? when the circumstances of life put you in those spots that you're just kind of teetering back and forth between plunging into the darkness or leaning in to the Lord. Maybe it's the circumstances of your life just seem to change and you don't know, you don't have an interpretive grid for what's going on yet. I mean, have you ever noticed that uh, life, doesn't, life doesn't really have... Uh, Life doesn't make allowances for our crisis moments. You ever notice that? It's not like when, when, when something is going wrong that an all-points bulletin, a memo goes out to everybody, hey, she's having a really bad day, so you might want to, you know, just be a little bit nicer, lessen the load. You know, he really got, he got some really bad news, and, and so you might want to, you know, tread lightly. That doesn't happen. That's not part of, of real life. Life just has a way of steamrolling us on occasion, and, and we don't know what to do. Joseph was in, in that place, and he had this choice to make. He could, he could go to the depths of despair, or he could lean into God. He could have pouted and become bitter, and just gone through the motions of life, but, but he didn't do that. He kept on. The, the Bible says that the Lord was with him. That's how verse 2 starts. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Now, when we hear the word prosper, 
the first thing that usually comes to our modern ears, it has something to do with business, economics, wealth. The Lord prospered him, so, you know, he, he got rich. Well, that's not what the Hebrew word means there. When the Bible says that the Lord prospered Joseph, it doesn't mean that he made him wealthy. The, the root word uh, for the Hebrew word for, for prosper is to push forward. To push forward. To advance. Maybe you could say that the Lord helped him find a way when Joseph couldn't see a way. The, the Lord helped him advance. Re remember, if you spin forward uh, several hundred years from this particular story, it's one of the formative stories of Christianity when the people of Israel found themselves all as slaves and captives in Egypt, and a guy that we know in the Bible's name is Moses, God tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, I want you to go free my people from out of Egypt. I've heard their cries, and I want to do something about it, so I'm sending you to, to go take care of this. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Well, at the end of that, the people go. And, and as they're leaving, they, they get to a point along a sea. And they find themselves camped, and there's the sea here, and there's the rock. And then the Bible in Exodus tells us that Pharaoh changed his mind. And so the whole Egyptian army is advancing on them, and they find themselves, they're hemmed in between the sea, the rock, and, and Pharaoh's army. And it looked like there was nowhere to go. Moses, why did you, did you just lead us out here so that we could all be slaughtered and, and die? And, and Moses is like, okay, God, what, what should we do? And Moses' advice to the people was, well, just stand still. Some, just stay firm. Stay put. God will come through somehow, some way. So the faith of Moses is there. And <laughs> Moses looks up to God, and God says, what are you doing? Tell the people to get going. He's helping them find a way when they didn't think there was a way. And so when the Bible says that, that the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered him, he helped Joseph see a way. He helped Joseph advance down a path that Joseph didn't even know existed. Don't you think that he can do the same thing? For any one of us, if we're listening, if we're paying attention to him, when, when we see roadblocks all over the place, whether they're physical or, or maybe they're in our minds, and we just we need to have some sort of, of breakthrough for our own health and well-being, don't you think that the Lord will help you prosper in the same way and push through and find a way where you don't see one? See, whether you thrive or whether you dive is really all a matter of attitude and where your eyes are looking. Are you, are you looking and leaning into the Lord or are you, are you looking at the circumstances that may be miserable right now? I, one of my favorite things about Scripture is that it interprets itself. And so you can, you can read the Bible cover to cover and things that you uncover in one passage there are, uh, there are illustrations littered all over the Bible to, to help you 
understand maybe what the biblical authors are saying. And so as I was thinking through Joseph's situation, I was reminded of a, of a little story. It's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. You might want to flip over there. I, I think it's worth taking a minute or two to talk about this one because it kind of illustrates Joseph being in this place where he's teetering on the edge of despair and prosperity with the Lord in finding a path when he didn't think that there might be one available. Second Kings chapter 4 uh, says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. So already we know that this is a family of faith. This is a this is a people, this is a husband and a wife and a, and a family who knew the Lord. They served the Lord and they revered him. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. My husband's gone. I have no means to live by. What we had accumulated, we've eaten through. We've burned. We have no resources left. And to get us out of debt, to allow us to have a meal on the table in the coming weeks, the people who we owed money to, they're coming and they're going to take my boys as slaves to cancel the debts. And my family is going to be ripped apart. I need some help. <laughs> Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? <laughs> I, you know, we have more modern kinds of ways of exasperation in, uh, in, our, in our language, but I imagine this woman coming up with something like, duh, <laughs> I need money. If I had anything left in my house to put up on eBay, don't you think I would have already done that? I need I need resources. He says, well, what do you have? I'm not sure you were listening, Mr. Prophet. I have nothing, is what she says. She's in this place of miserable circumstance. She doesn't know what to do. She's on the edge, teetering back and forth. She's a, she comes from a family of faith. She knows that the Lord is with them and that she can lean into the Lord, but, but circumstances have put her in this spot where she is just kind of tilting the other way, like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I need your help. And her first instinct is to say, I have nothing. She minimizes what she already had. She minimizes whatever she had that was left. She, she doesn't see that. She, she sees the deficiency. And Elisha says, what do you have? She says, nothing. And I th it's not blocked into Scripture, but I think the stage directions would, would go something like this. What do you have? Nothing. I think there was a long, awkward pause. And probably, probably some eye contact that makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. What do you have? Nothing. 
Nothing? Really? Nothing? See, she was so overwhelmed by her scarcity that it blinded, to, blinded her to her supply. Because we know that she's got a little bit of oil left. There's this pause. Your servant has nothing except... <laughs> she, broke, she broke the silence. Well, except a small jar of olive oil. Well, that's something. That's something to go on. That's the blessing of the Lord in your life. I was talking to somebody in the past couple weeks, and, and they were just going on and on and on and on and on about how horrible life was and that it just, just everything was negative and everything was falling apart. And, and I finally was like, so time out. Can, can you think of even one good thing that's going on in your life right now? I got nothing. Nothing. Nothing, really. The fact that you woke up and you got out of bed this morning, that's, that's nothing. The fact that you have friends who care about you and you can come and, and talk, that's nothing. What, what do you have? These, these are people who are they're on that, that precipice and they can lean one direction or the other. And in, in these cases, there are people who have a, a, a framework of faith. They understand the Lord's presence is with them. But sometimes when life is just miserable and rotten, we're tempted to kind of maybe lean the other direction. And see, at the, this, this woman, she's focused on all the negatives. She's lost her husband. She's about to lose her boys. She doesn't have any resource left, and so all she can see is the deficiency. She doesn't, she doesn't see that the presence of the Lord is with her in, in, in the oil. She doesn't recognize that the Lord is about to remind her of his presence in a mighty way. He, she doesn't realize that, that there's going to be a, a, a miracle that happens for something that she didn't even think was worth mentioning. Maybe sometimes that's where we need to start is to think about the supply that we do have. And imagine with me the miracles that God can do through us looking to the positive and looking to the blessings that he's already given us. Well, I could preach a little bit longer on 2 Kings 4, but maybe we should get back to Joseph. Joseph had the choice. Joseph is on this precipice here, and he had every reason to make a long list of reasons why life just stunk. How he had it was, uh, suffered injustice, all of this stuff that was unbearable. It's just, ah, make a long list. I'm just going to be angry about it and bitter and hardened and steal all of his joy, and he's just going to go through the rest of life going through the motions. He, ha he could have made that choice. But the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. See, God is present with his people even in the worst of circumstances. All of the places that you travel and it just feels horrible and rotten, there's somebody who is walking with you all along. The presence of the Lord goes with you. 
Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So Joseph chose to lean into the Lord. He chose to recognize that the presence of the Lord was with him, and he lived, in, he lived into that supply. And the Bible tells us, the story tells us, that his master, the Egyptian, Potiphar, saw something. He, he witnessed in Joseph the work of the Lord. Joseph lived in such a way that Potiphar could see that his connection with God was something very significant, and it was evident in the way that Joseph lived and loved and worked in his reliability and his dependability. All of those things were clear signs that the Lord was with Joseph in such a way that it provided a witness to Potiphar. I think we got to ask the question, do you live your life in such a way that other people see evidence of the Lord at work in, in your life? Matthew 5 says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, live in such a way that people see that you're living for the Lord and you're not taking any of the credit for it. You are living for the Lord and doing things for Him and, and they see that the Lord is prospering you, showing you ways to go when there may not be ways evident. And, and instead of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at this whole life thing. No, you're saying, I'm my own. I'm nothing. I'm giving all of the credit and the glory to God who is at work in and through my life. And it's extending that witness. So when people notice the activity of God in your life, you're, you're connecting the dots for them. Joseph lived in, in such a way, and in, to such a degree that Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household. I mean, that's a really personal space that Joseph has now been put in. I mean, like Potiphar and Joseph. He was like his attendant, his steward of his household handled all of his um, affairs, both in the home and out in the field. The only thing, only thing that he worried about, besides his career, when he got home was, what's for dinner? That's the only thing that the Bible says he worried about. Joseph took care of everything else. When he walked in the door, hey, what are we having for dinner? I'm a little bit hungry. And it says that because of Joseph and Joseph's witness in that household that the Lord prospered and blessed Potiphar and his household. Back in Genesis 12, when God approached Abraham, one of the covenant promises was that Abraham and his family would be a blessing to those around them. That through Abraham's 
family that God would extend his blessing on other people. And part of that was, uh, those who bless you, I will bless. And so we see the promise, the covenant promise of God coming to fruition uh, in and through this story. So the Lord was, was with Joseph uh, when he was sold into slavery, even though he might not have seen it. When his life was at a low point, God was with him, and the Lord was with him in Potiphar's house, and things were going well. So in good times and in bad times, we see the presence of the Lord with Joseph, because I think he's in tune. He's, he's looking, he's leaning in, into the Lord. But just because you're faithfully walking with the Lord doesn't mean that you're going to be rewarded with good things all the time. Uh, life has a, um, the, <laughs> the ability uh, on sometimes a regular basis to throw curveballs into the mix, to throw trouble. Just in, in our living in our human existence, we're going to run into troubles and trials. The Bible never says that we are immune to that when we come to Christ. When we keep reading the story, um, there's a long section of chapter 39 that if you, if you were to, I'm imagining that most of the sermons, if not all of the sermons you've heard on Genesis 39 have to deal with um, temptation. What to do if you are tempted. The, the main point of this story is not about temptation. The main point of this story is to see the presence of the Lord with you in good times and in bad. The story that we have in front of us in Genesis 39 is a fantastic story about how to deal with temptation when it comes our way. Uh, in this case, though, I, th I think that this story of temptation is used to illustrate the point that God stays with you in good times and when things aren't so good. So, Verse 6b says that now Joseph was well-built and handsome. That's a little hint. <laughs> Something's going to change in the text. I mean, so far, we're not talking about Joseph and his physical appearance, but Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. That's pretty direct. Curveball. I'm in charge of this house. And of course, in the story, Joseph refuses. He resists the temptation. Um, he, he flees from temptation. He remembers that he is a servant. He is, uh, that it would, it would be a sin against his master. He knows that that would go against uh, his conscience, and he knows that that would be a sin against God for him to um, comply with this command. Now, recognize she's the lady of the house, so she is kind of his boss, and so this temptation would have come across as a direct command to a servant. So if he refuses, then he could lose his job. But if he gives in, he could also lose his job. He could also lose his life. 
And so he refuses, and he, he offers to her that, no, that would be a sin against my master. He's put me in this place. He, he has entrusted his whole estate to me. How could, I, how could I dare jeopardize that? How could I dare go against the trust that he's put in me in being unfaithful to him in that way? And, and how could I be unfaithful to my God in that way? And so he resists. See, when things are going well, you got you to have, you have your eyes open. You have to have your guard up. When things are going well, that's usually when temptation starts to work its way in because sometimes we get a little bit bored and, or popularity goes to our head or whatever it is, and there's, there's other people out there that want to take us down. And so you know, when things are going well, that's oftentimes when temptation hits. See, most of the time, you're not tempted to do things that are outside of your control. The things that tempt us the most are the things that you could actually make happen. And Joseph is successful in resisting, except one day he goes into the house and all the other servants have somehow disappeared. The camera lens narrows to an episode where it's Joseph and the lady of the house, Potiphar's wife, they're the only people in the house. And she makes an advance at him again. And the Hebrew's pretty suggestive when you read it that she kind of tried to force herself on him and, and he's trying to get away and she grabs onto his cloak and, and he somehow slips out of his cloak and, and he runs. He, he runs. That's a good thing to do when temptation strikes is to run. She's holding his cloak and she's embarrassed, she's rejected, she's scorned, and I, I, I got to do something about it. And so she comes up with this clever plan. I'm going to turn it around on Joseph, the Hebrew. And so she stages the scene, and she screams for help, and the other servants come running, and she said, he tried to force himself on me. See, I have his cloak as proof. Potiphar comes home. She tells him the story. He, obviously, he's angry, enraged, and he throws, he throws Joseph in jail. So we started, you know, just as a, a slave being sold, and there was kind of a rise. The Lord was with him here. The Lord was with him here. And, and now we find that the trajectory of Joseph again is now, now he's in jail. There's a hint of good news in the fact that he's in jail. Potiphar would not have been on Pharaoh's cabinet if he was not a sharp guy. This guy's pretty intuitive, smart. I don't think, it's not in the, it's not in the text, so I, I could be wrong, but I think that Potiphar didn't believe his wife. I think Potiphar heard her story, and he knew the man, Joseph, that he had entrusted the care of his entire household to. He saw evidence of the Lord in his life. Not that that makes him infallible, but he saw the presence of God in Joseph's life, and he saw how his own household was blessed through Joseph. I think maybe in the back of his mind he was wondering, 
Is she making up a story to cover up something? Because what Joseph was accused of doing was punishable by death. Potiphar is the chief executioner. If he thought that that story was absolutely 100% true, I think that he would have ended Joseph's life almost immediately. No trial necessary. You're done. But instead, instead, he puts him in jail. Maybe to find out if there was any validity or further evidence, whatever it is. That, that's, that's my own little hypothesis there, but we see that Joseph is still alive, and the story continues. But while Joseph was there in prison, verse 21, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who, held, who were held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did there. The Lord was with Joseph. He entered into the story at a low point. Miserable circumstances. And the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph remained faithful to God. And so he, he worked like he was working for the Lord in Potiphar's house. And he saw the blessings of the Lord in that household to a point where he was number two in that household. The Lord was with Joseph. And somebody comes after him with false accusations. Situation gone bad. The Lord was still with him there. When you do the right thing, don't always expect a reward for what you were doing. Joseph was rewarded for his obedience and faithfulness with time in prison. Sometimes telling the truth at work might get you fired. Sometimes playing by the rules will get you fourth place while the cheaters get the gold. Sometimes saying no to going to that party will kind of exclude you from the cool people at school. Joseph landed in prison. But when you, when you do right, when you act in ways that are faithful to God, God will honor that. God will honor you for that. And we see that in the closing verses that we just read, that the Lord's presence was with Joseph even when he was on the plummeting back down into prison. When you're going through tough times, God is with you. He'll be there to help you through the difficult circumstances and the difficult choices, which will always be part of life. God's presence means that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's no evil that we need to fear because the presence of God goes with us. 
He's there in the hospital room when you get the bad word. He's, he's there in the unemployment line with you. He's there in the counselor's office. He's in the pits and the prisons. The valleys are dark. The shadow of death is real in life. There's no, there's no denying any of that. But there's also no denying that the presence of God is with us. In the same way that he was with Joseph, he is with you. And so, uh, as we think about this text, it is an Advent text. <laughs> o come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile. That may be the place that you're traveling right now. And if it's not, and you're in a good place, that's great. Maybe what you can do with this message is remind somebody who is traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. So turn to your neighbor and say, Merry Christmas. Oh, you got to be louder than that. Turn to your neighbor and say, Merry Christmas. All right, it's Christmas in July. Thanks be to God.